0: Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show offers belated birthday wishes to Henry David Thoreau. Born David Henry Thoreau on July 12, 1817 in Concord, Massachusetts. All of the music for the show is off of Vijay Ayer's Accelerando, released in 2012. Ayer is on piano, Stephen Crump is on bass, and Marcus Gilmore on drums. This is optimism. July 12th marked the 200th anniversary of the birthday of Henry David Thoreau. We like anniversaries and birthdays in particular. We like to mark time, to celebrate occasions. And in fact, like most words, occasion holds an etymological tension within it by meaning both downfall and a falling together which seems only right for a term that is communal, civic, and religious in nature. On this occasion of the birth of Thoreau, we're forced to confront the vexed nature of our reception of his genius. So many of us hate Thoreau, while so many of us love him. He is one of the country's polarizing figures. But it seems to me he is such only as caricature. Here is a recent one from McSweeney's a satire called Eight Male Authors to Read Before You Die. The author says, tongue in cheek. It's a little demoralizing that in 2017, this sort of post still needs to be written. Nevertheless, male authors continue to be underrepresented in book clubs, on bestseller lists, and as a meaningful part of school curricula. And here's her praise on Walden. Quote, alone in the woods, except for a dozen or so friends who visit daily. The neighborhood kids who play in the pond, and his mom who frequently delivers food to him on foot, Thoreau is able to explore the depths of his physical and political existence in relationship to nature. He concludes that the key to a contented life is profound simplicity, which only requires enough money to buy land, build a house, not work, and have enough solitude to really listen to your own brilliance." Unquote. That hints at the negative reception and suggests the writing is at odds with the life. Generally, he's thought of as a crank, and his dropping-out gesture one of irresponsible selfishness. Well, being a crank seems okay to me, and Thoreau is our greatest critic of the effects of the property economy, i.e. capitalism, and of slavery as well. His family's home was used as part of the Underground Railroad to assist the enslaved in escaping their bondage. But all of Thoreau's writing speaks to a deep belief in the communal, both with your fellow humans and with nature, and with the past. And I can't help but wonder if any of the folks who seek to belittle him have ever actually read his work. So today I'll offer segments out of two programs we've produced for Interchange, one with Branca Arsic and the other with Christoph Ermscher. We'll begin with Christoph Ermscher. Here we're discussing Thoreau's masterwork essay on resistance to civil government, written in 1848 while Thoreau was in the cabin at Walden Pond. It may surprise you that a shoe might hold the key to Henry's idea of living.
1: The essay actually started out as a as a lecture, or really it started out as an experience. Uh, Thoreau had moved to Walden Pond near Concord, Massachusetts on July 4th, 1845. It was an act of uh, asserting his independence. He built a cabin with his own hands and spent two years living in that cabin, surviving, as he said, uh, by the labor of his own, hand, uh, his own hands uh it was during that time during the time he spent out at Walden Pond in this cabin that he was arrested on his uh, way back to town he was getting a shoe mended he was arrested by the constable of Concord an affable man called Sam Staples who knew that Thoreau had not paying his had not been paying his poll tax for 6 years altogether and um, he felt compelled finally to do something about that. Sam Staples was a state representative, uh, he was running for office. He uh, felt that he finally had to act, and um, so he took Thoreau in and Thoreau spent a night in jail, a famous night in jail that he kept revisiting and revisiting and revisiting. And uh, he gave a lecture about his experience on January 26, 1848, in Concord and uh, turned the uh, lecture into an essay that was published in 1849 in a very short-lived journal published by Elizabeth Peabody. Uh, But really the essay sank without a ripple. It was published one more time in 1866 and uh, then pretty much forgotten, had it not been for Tolstoy and eventually Gandhi um, who republished it uh, in South Africa Uh, and really sort of made it the signature piece of political resistance in the 20th century.
0: Well, let's, uh, as you said, he makes narrative use of it uh, multiple times in multiple works, and uh, he uses it in his first book, uh, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. He uses it in Walden, as well as then using it in Civil Disobedience. So I just thought we'd go ahead and read the section out of Walden and then read the section out of Civil Disobedience to set it up. So I'll go ahead and do that, and if you don't mind commenting after I read it. So here's the section out of Walden one afternoon near the end of the first summer when i went to the village to get a shoe from the cobblers i was seized and put into jail because as i have elsewhere related i did not pay a tax to or recognize the authority of the state which buys and sells men women and children like cattle at the door of its senate house i had gone down to the woods for other purposes but wherever a man goes men will pursue and paw him with their dirty institutions and, if they can, constrain him to belong to their desperate odd-fellow society. It is true, I might have resisted forcibly, with more or less effect, might have run amuck against society, but I preferred that society should run amuck against me, it being the desperate party. However, I was released the next day, obtained my mended shoe, and returned to the woods in season to get my dinner of huckleberries on Fairhaven Hill. And this is the the selection as it is related in Civil Disobedience. I have paid no poll tax for six years. I was put into jail once on this account for one night. And as I stood considering the walls of solid stone, two or three feet thick, the door of wood and iron a foot thick, and the iron grating which strained the light, I could not help being struck with the foolishness of that institution which treated me as if I were mere flesh and blood and bones to be locked up. I wondered that it should have concluded at length that this was the best use it could have put me to, and had never thought to avail itself of my services in some way. I saw that, if there was a wall of stone between me and my townsmen, there was a still more difficult one to climb or break through before they could get to be as free as I was. I did not for a moment feel confined, and the walls seemed a great waste of stone and mortar. I felt as if I alone, of all my townsmen, had paid my tax." They plainly did not know how to treat me, but behaved like persons who are underbred. In every threat and in every compliment there was a blunder, for they thought that my chief desire was to stand the other side of that stone wall. I could not but smile to see how industriously they locked the door on my meditations, which followed them out again, without let or hindrance, and they were really all that was dangerous. As they could not reach me, they had resolved to punish my body, just as boys, if they cannot come at some person against whom they have a spite, will abuse his dog. I saw that the state was half-witted, that it was timid as a lone woman with her silver spoons, and that it did not know its friends from its foes, and I lost all my remaining respect for it and pitied it.
1: One of the really amusing things about, especially that first passage from Walden, is that Thoreau keeps mentioning the shoe he's getting a shoe mended which for thorough is not just an incidental thing Uh, in walden um, he makes that famous statement that some of my students always find very difficult to understand Um, beware of any enterprise that requires new clothes rather than a wearer of new clothes (laughs) which really means that what's important is what's what's inside of you not the outside And for Thoreau, that meant quite literally recycling, reusing things, not acquiring new things. Because the worst thing that can happen to you is uh, to put lots of stuff between you and your objectives, your aims, clothes, property, houses, whatever you feel that you need to acquire that you really don't need. So Thoreau is in this mundane act of getting his shoe, picking up a shoe that he's uh, that he's had mended and in that activity is interrupted by the jailer and is taken away. And um, in the second passage, and that's really an indication of what a great writer Thor is, if you just listen to it, the many times he repeats wall, 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 body, body. So you really get the sense of this man, this body being put away behind a wall, a completely senseless act because the spirit cannot be confined and that is what's important to Thoreau. This is a book about being whole, being at one with yourself. The wall that intervenes or supposedly intervenes between you and the outside for Thoreau is not important. It's a silly thing to do. This is why he ends the passage by chastising the state, by calling the state Represented by Sam Staples, the constable, uh, by calling it a timid woman with her silver spoons trying to protect something. Against what? Against a man who dares think his own thoughts. Right. Well, the uh, the
0: other thing that seemed interesting to me with the shoe is that uh, it does also step into that place where people can uh, act as if Thoreau or Thoreau does not um, care for society, that he wants to be an isolationist or isolated from his um, townsfolk and from people generally, but here he is initially um, talking about the way we use each other, the way we are in a community of of, of if if not for uh, another use, of trade or this is a particular kind of local commerce that he he has with the shoe exactly, and yeah. that's really important too. And what's what it, what is interrupted is that commerce with the local, yeah. uh, the jailer, yeah. the state yeah. steps
1: in and yeah. interrupts his local commerce exactly. Yeah. This is a an essay about, um, you you can call it a book as well because it is so full of things Mm -hmm. that it really amounts to being uh, a separate separate text. This is an essay about being a citizen, about being part of a community. It's not an essay about um, withdrawing. Uh, The move out to Walden Pond was not an isolationist gesture. It was an attempt for Thoreau to get back to what is essential about being a member of a society and he felt that it had been obliterated. Uh, through the detritus that we accumulate around ourselves, and he wanted to get back to the essentials. There were people living out at Walden Pond, and he he actually stresses it in Walden, that there were other people that he meets that come by. There were previous um, inhabitants, people who'd done the same thing that he'd done, or something similar. So Thoreau is a vibrant, vibrant human being uh, whose one goal is to be recognized as such and to have nothing intervene between him and his own idea of who he should be and between him and his fellow citizens and who those who they should be really that is his vision of a complete society
0: Um, You and I talked before that there is a there seems to be often a visceral response to Thoreau Most people either love him or hate him and and as we deal with uh, students sometimes in particular you get a very strong reaction against him Uh, Can you explain a little bit why you think
1: that is? students feel or not just students other people feel that sure. he pontificates that he talks too much too much about himself uh, that he seems to be full of himself that he's in possession of the truth and that they find um, difficult to understand uh, for Thoreau, the one thing that matters is to be yourself and his writing his philosophy is intended to model that state of wholeness and for that to be adequately communicated he has to perform it in his writing. He has to he has to illustrate to us what this would be like to be an independent human being in full possession of one's intellectual linguistic powers um, and that you know we find again in Walt Whitman who is somebody who learns from Thoreau and Emerson. We, we, we should not confuse under any circumstances the performance of this completeness with self-centeredness or egotism. At the beginning of um, Walden, in a passage that I like very much, Thoreau um, writes that he is confined by the narrowness of his own experience. He doesn't know about other people's lives, but he certainly knows about his own life. And he goes on to describe what he does as a garment. The book is a garment. It's a coat that that you can try on. If it doesn't fit you, try something else try to be yourself in a different way. It is not important that you be exactly like Thoreau, that you imitate him to the letter. It is important that you understand the gesture mm. that is behind his performance.
0: It's time for a break. Our show today celebrates the 200th birthday of Henry David Thoreau. We've just heard Christoph Ermscher on the performance of wholeness in Thoreau's greatest works. Our song for the break is, Actions Speak, again off of Vijay Iyer's Accelerando. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back, I'm Doug Storm for Interchange on WFHB. We'll continue the 2013 conversation I had with Christoph Ermscher on Thoreau's essay Civil Disobedience. Here Thoreau anticipates how his future readers will complain about him, and Ermscher identifies the aim of Thoreau to reach us at the point before we decide to do or not do something. I do not wish to quarrel with any man or nation. I do not wish to split hairs, to make fine distinctions, or set myself up as better than my neighbors. I seek rather, I may say, even an excuse for conforming to the laws of the land. I am but too ready to conform to them. Indeed, I have a reason to suspect myself on this head, and each year, as the tax gatherer comes round, I find myself disposed to review the acts and position of the general and state governments, and the spirit of the people. To discover a pretext for conformity. We must affect our country as our parents, and if at any time we alienate our love or industry from doing it honor, we must respect effects and teach the soul matter of conscience and religion, and not desire of rule or benefit.
1: This is thorough anticipating what we might think of him. Uh, All the objections that you hear today against Mm -hmm. Thoreau as someone who's splitting hairs, who's making fine distinctions, who thinks he's better than his neighbors. um, It's just this uncanny instinct with which he predicts what people might think of him. And he he tells us, I really have no desire to alienate anybody. I would love to conform. I would love not to rock, rock the boat. But... I have to <laughs> um, this is how he's building up um, the uh, the reasons for his resistance. This is a Thor who's ba- who's like us. He m- knows our desire for conformity. he knows our desire to fit in, and he addresses it by saying it's my desire too. Um, it's really amazing the variety of roles that he tries out. he's the assertive who um, pounds on the table who will tell us what we need to think. And here is, here is one of the masses of men, except it's a role that doesn't fit him. It's a coat that doesn't fit him
0: uh here too, in this particular reading that the tax gatherer comes around and we didn't read this section, but uh, he does say at some point the only way he meets the government uh, this uh, civil government or the government is is to meet his civil neighbor uh, in in the presence of, uh, of the tax collector that this is how the only way he in particular face to face Person to person Mm -hmm. meets the government, meets the state, meets is by taxes. You know, is by this relationship of taxing. And he says here, I'd like to have a way to imagine this tax is good. You know, that I can go through this list of things that have been done that are good things, but. Mm, I don't find a way that I can conform to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's important. Uh, it's one of the things I think when we talk about this particular essay, and, and a lot of people I think want Thoreau and this essay to be uh, um, like a, a template to action you know to say what what are you going to do what is yeah. Thor going to do the guy doesn't do anything this is the, the another argument what is he doing and, and to me this is the, the about the only place that you really get that sense of of a a person in action yeah. is in is is in taking that 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 jail stance which yeah. isn't even necessary really in terms of yeah. meeting the tax gatherer yes. you know you yeah. say tax gatherer i don't yeah. want to yeah. pay tax yeah. and the tax gatherer he says you've got you've got an option as a tax yeah. gatherer too to say hmm yeah. maybe you shouldn't have to maybe i shouldn't pay taxes either because i don't believe in this war i don't believe what these few people are doing this is yeah. this is the thing he's asking you to do is have a conversation with that civil yeah. neighbor Thoreau
1: wants to get us at the point before we do something, mm-hmm. or before we decide not to do something. That is the point that interests him. What is happening in us that makes us perform an act or not? And. Uh, it's irrelevant, really, what we do, whether we move out into a cabin or whether we stop paying taxes or whether we speak up in public against slavery as some of his fellow transcendentalists did. Some of them resorted to violence even because they they, they couldn't really think of any other recourse. It is important that you not live a life of quiet desperation. That's a quote from Walden. And for him to get us at the point before we decide... He needs to really go deep and touch us in a place, our minds, uh, where people usually don't go. Um, That's why his writing is so difficult, so direct, often tangible. Um, The words are basically popping at us when we read Thoreau. It's it's wonderful when you read them out loud. The rhetoric
0: is amazing. More if we can, but this is uh, another reading. It's near the end, the close of the essay. Uh, there will never be a really free and enlightened state until the state comes to recognize the individual as a higher and independent power from which all its own power and authority are derived, and treats him accordingly. I please myself with imagining a state at least which can afford to be just to all men and to treat the individual with respect as a neighbor which even would not think it inconsistent with its own repose, if a few were to live aloof from it, not meddling with it, nor embraced by it, who fulfilled all the duties of neighbors and fellow men. A state which bore this kind of fruit, and suffered it to drop off as fast as it ripened, would prepare the way for a still more perfect and glorious state, which also I have imagined,
1: but not yet anywhere seen." There is that utopian element that I talked about, the state that he hasn't seen yet, but that he can imagine um, using the power of his mind. What is also important in this passage is how he keeps coming back to the concept of a neighbor. Uh, Remember, it it is a neighbor, Sam Staples, who arrests him, for something that that abstract entity, the state, that wages a war not on Thor's behalf, um, requires that neighbor to do, but that's not how neighbors should interact. That's not how fellow men should treat each other. And he is giving us in that final passage, that vision of a society composed of individuals who respect each, other's as neighbor, uh, each other as neighbors. As citizen for thorough means being a neighbor, living close to your fellow human being and to treat it as such.
0: Well, he does say too, that the, he asked that, uh, that we allow certain of our neighbors to be aloof yeah. from the from ourselves even from from your locality from your 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 citizens from from your um even from your neighbors you know how far off are your neighbors can you can you live uh, uh without being bothered sometimes too it's okay right, right? yeah <laughs> yeah an interesting thing in the essay is his uh exp- explanation of his prison stay yeah, where um you You see uh, a little bit of a relationship mm-hmm. with uh another his his, his cellmate i believe yeah, yeah, yeah. who has uh, burned a barn accidentally yeah, right yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but seems a very jovial fellow yeah, um yeah, happy yeah, to do what yeah, he's doing, getting yeah, meals yeah, uh yeah, provided yeah. for um uh, that, in a sense, is,
1: is a friendly relationship in the yeah, body of the yeah, essay. Yeah. You know? The jail almost becomes a version of Thor's cabin displaced mm-hmm. uh, into Concord. Mm-hmm. And Concord in that jail scene looks like a medieval uh, town to him as he looks out mm-hmm. from his jail cell. Um, again, uh, reminding, uh, reminding of what we said earlier, Thor is quite funny. He's a, there's, a, there's a lively, witty imagination at work here. And it comes paired with anger over war, over things that the government does to people like him. Um, so there are many, many sides. He's a very, very multifaceted faceted individual, and uh, he gives us a plea for individuality, for people to be free, to be quirky, to be different, to be aloof, or to join society if they feel like it, which is precisely what Thoreau wanted to.
0: Well, uh, I think that we often run into trouble trying to understand within the context of, um, government or within the context of society, the idea of the individual, Mm -hmm. you know, we get somewhat confused. I think that the individual should not be bothered, should Mm -hmm. be private, Mm -hmm. should be left alone. Mm -hmm. Um, that, and, and as you already indicated, you know, this was not Thoreau's idea Mm-hmm. Uh, a man who was really fairly social, I yeah. mean he it was a curmudgeon, uh, as far as I can tell, and yeah. people had to learn how to deal with him, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Uh, he had friends he had people help him you know put the walls on his uh, cabin yeah. um, someone a friend who stayed with him in the yeah. cabin for for weeks mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah so he 's not that mm-hmm. sort of isolationist yeah. individual, the private man yeah. um, the The question always comes up I think why do we assume? That we should check out in order to be free or to be individual. You know, the, there is no checking out for Thoreau. You know, the yeah, idea right yeah, here that we have yeah. this piece of uh, a paper in front of us that that has words that 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 live and breathe and talk to us yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. uh, uh, hundred and fifty odd years. I don't. know, yeah, 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 yeah. That this is a
1: legacy of action of yeah, its own. Yeah. Yeah, and this was not something that he privately penned and then didn't do anything with it. He gave it as a as a talk in Concord, and the way people responded to it, mm-hmm. uh, Alcott, Alcott attended it. Um, a man who's otherwise very, very different from uh, Thoreau, Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow read it in aesthetic papers and said it was very good. <laughs> so he was actually, and Longfellow was precisely the man who made all sorts of compromises, you know, a Harvard professor, um, a man who lived a very sedate, a very organized life and who'd written poems against slavery, but was certainly not giving speeches with the abolitionists, <laughs> but Thoreau's essay was for him too. Um, so, the point of understanding Thor is that there's, he's not prescriptive. He's prescriptive in the sense that only that he wants us to think about what we do. Mm-hmm. The action that we take, as long as it's in accordance with our sense of who we are as individuals, that is our choice. Mm-hmm. We do not need to be like Thoreau. Um The best way to be like Thoreau is to be unlike him. That's what he's telling us. So if it means checking out or being aloof from the rest of society, so be it. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: um, the, the interesting thing too, I think is within this context, um, we, we continue to see him in a solitary way. We continue to not let him be, um, what I think he, he really is, which is, you know, a man who, who is talking to us about, as you say, complacency, Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. that, that he, he's not complacent. Yeah. And, and I think it's funny that people get the sense that because yeah. he's not an activist per se, yeah, yeah, that yeah. he's complacent too. He's yeah, not doing yeah. either. And that doing is, is, yeah. is something that isn't complacent. But the, the action of this particular piece is all about this expediency, which yeah, is doing yeah, without yeah, thought, yeah, yeah, and yeah, doing to serve a particular yeah, ut- yeah, utility. Yeah. And the act of thinking, which is often quite slow, yeah. and intended to be. you know, you right. you need to think things through. We need to have looked at this thing from all sides. The idea that we want to undertake these actions, ourselves, to understand our moral sense, to yeah, understand yeah. our relationship to our government, to our friends, right. to our teachers, right. to right. to each other. So right. this is the act that I think is most important here is to yeah. say, even in reading this essay, mm-hmm. you you then aren't complacent anymore. No. If you take and it that. might
1: translate into action. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one example, one of my personal heroes, the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when, uh, when the question of resisting Hitler came up, he was the first to say, we've always, we've always just dealt with the victims, people who, who end up under the wheel. Now the time has come to stop the wheel from turning. Mm, yes. And that is a Thoreauian influence that we see right there. It's time for
0: another break. This is Vijay Ayers, the star of the story. Our show today is in celebration of the genius of Henry David Thoreau. When we return, we'll revisit our show with Branka Arsic, who proposes that Thoreau means literally every word he writes. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. It's our Happy Birthday, Henry show. That's Henry David Thoreau, who was born 200 years ago on July 12, 1817, in Concord, Massachusetts, where he lived his 44 years of life, dying there on May 6, 1862. In the first half of the show, we return to our 2013 discussion with Christoph Ermscher about what might be the most important and influential political essay written in this country, Civil Disobedience. For the second half of the show, we'll dip into a 2016 interchange conversation with Branka Arsic about her book, Bird Relics, which seeks to center Thoreau's work in his profound grief over his brother John's death. We begin with Arsic's strong defense against the condemnation of Thoreau as an egoist asocial, apolitical, and at best, a libertarian and misanthrope. Then we turn to his first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers.
2: Walden itself begins by sort of famously saying uh, that he's going to give account of himself. Which one of us is doing that uh, or does that ever? whoever, uh, even of Thoreau's uh, critics, takes others so seriously that they would, uh, in fact, say, OK, I'll give you an account of who I am and what I did and what I'm doing. That, to begin with, is a political and a social gesture. So Walden is the book that opens by this claim, look, I'm not alone, and I'm going to answer to this call. There were people in the village, in the town, who were asking what I was doing. I'm going to tell you what I was doing. The whole book is therefore premised on that kind of ethical hypothesis or or thorough's claim that I can never do what I do without giving an account of what uh, I'm doing to the community, which I'm the member of. Um, That's just a little note, you know, that's how famously the book opens. But throughout the book, he goes on to um, explain his kind of art of living that was never asocial. There is a moment when when he explicitly says in Walden that, you know, sometimes he's accused of like not being isolated enough or his isolation being fake because he would go to the village where he talks about that in Walden. And he says why? And he says that, Um, that that his experiment of being isolated from uh, the community would fail if he did not know what was going on in the village. He is depicting what he did in a very complex way that is never asocial and he never claims a total isolation. So the challenge for us would be to ask the question, why that is so, why he never wanted to be isolated, and why he thought that a complete immersion, um, indifferent immersion into the communal, is also uh, something that is ethically questionable, rather than to just dismiss him as a social or a political. And finally, one last remark that he was a misanthrope. Um, that's the most curious kind of refusal to read and understand thorough that I'm aware of because that really is obscure, that there's no even a false premise that would corroborate that because he's a person who, as I document in my book, really cares about his friends and his mentors and his fellow townsmen, not to mention animals or, or natural life or trees or plant life and but also somebody who, um, in fact, was really very politically active, who was helping run away slaves to begin with, right? He wasn't just writing about that. He was actually doing it. Um, why is that misentropic?
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, Walden in particular as the book and that we know him by, I think, more than anything else and misread him by, I suppose, the idea of the, again, as we said, the cabin on the lake. Uh, you just mentioned that generally uh, the cabin itself, building the cabin was a social experience. Um, even taking the, the materials uh, to, the, to the woods, taking them from a shanty as well. All these things are social experiences in Thoreau. He borrows an axe to begin because all things begin. In borrowing the the book, a week on the Concord of, and Merrimack Rivers, again, which I think forms a, a large a large part of your your argument here, has to do with. Uh, would you call it a monument to, to his life with his brother? Uh, is monument the wrong word or is it something like it uh, that that book has its, uh, its sort of genesis in trying to grieve, uh, to try to understand grieving, to try to understand the loss of his brother?
2: I think in and of itself, it's a great book. My claim was that um, it's not just that he was mourning because, in fact, in a final analysis, my interest in his mourning wasn't biographical or personal, uh, or at least not only. Um, That was interesting, but that would not be enough for me to write a book um, about it. So what I saw in his mourning was, one, that he kind of um, came and through precisely writing the week to formulate a uh, a theory of mourning that is most of the time, in fact, to my to my knowledge, was always overlooked, was never acknowledged. There is a lot of awareness um, and talk about how people uh, mourned in in antebellum America, but it, it is surprising that. No attention was paying, paid in that context to, to Thoreau. Um, and in fact, people talk much more about how Emerson mourned for his uh, son Waldo, which is interesting in and you know, of itself, but he does not, um, but Emerson never came up with the, with the, with the theory of mourning, um, which is what Thoreau does.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is Doug Storm, and I'm speaking with Branka Arsik about Henry David Thoreau's radical conceptions of death and life, which she details in her new book, Bird Relics, Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau.
2: What I wanted to do is to basically unearth that theory of mourning that was uh, formulated very cryptically. In, in three letters, he writes to three different people immediately mm-hmm. after his brother dies. Um, but in fact, um, my claim is that a week is more than a work of mourning for his brother, more than a performance of mourning, more than a practice uh, of healing or self-healing true writing, which is an argument that has been advanced, and there's nothing wrong with that argument, but it's not all there is to it. So my argument is that there is, in fact, a, um, that that book um, formulates in a very complex way um, this theory of mourning that he had cryptically uh, formulated in these three letters that he writes after, after John died. That was my initial um, investment. I just wanted to figure out how that theory of mourning worked. But something was wrong with it, you see. The, the, the more I was going into that theory, the more I was encountering a certain contradiction because his theory of mourning for the dead led um, almost, almost systematically in all of the instances I registered it to some sort of talk about the beauty of life. And beauty, not in aesthetic sense, like it's all nice and but beauty in kind of ontological sense, life always makes it. There is no death. And so I was thinking, what is what is this man talking about? How is it possible to mourn and yet to say, Well, but there is no death? And so um step by step I was led to in fact research his his philosophy of life which is why um, I pair in my subtitle the, the experience of grief in, in Thoreau and the theory of vitalism that he actually comes up formulating as a, as a result of his theory of grieving and his practice of grief.
0: Well, you, uh, you start, uh, well, I guess you almost end with the fact that his first published text is an obituary, and you talk a little bit about sort of the anonymity of that particular uh, obituary and, and, in general, the anonymity of, of ordinary life, in some sense, and how extraordinary life is and how we overlook the extraordinary in the ordinary, I suppose, and how, in a sense, Thoreau is trying to, um, to make these points it's an interesting unfolding. We, you know, it sort of flies against all of our understanding of history of, you know, I used the word monument earlier, right? Of everything that's monumental to us is singular. We name it, we praise it, we march to it, we, you know, we salute it, we, we, we celebrate it with, with things. And at the same time, it's the anonymity. It's the each, it's each of us um, that that's important to throw. It's interesting that this is one of the things that that he be- almost begins with, right?
2: One of the things um, that he was always kind of cautious about and, and concerned about was this insistence on precisely identity and and naming as the way of appropriating. I recovered one cancelled a passage from the week where he says, uh, the question that he raises is, the question of, like, the status of the famous um, um, people that made history. And so he talks about Newton and um, Isaac Newton. And so his question is, well, did he come up with the thought we celebrate him for? Or were there so many anonymous people, scientists, philosophers, um, including even the, uh, his neighbors uh, who were kind of making pie for, for him or... Um, who enabled um, his thought. And isn't it maybe that in what we call like um, historical persons, we actually should instead be regarding them as simply common names for a group of anonymous people Who at a certain point um, in time Enabled one of us To achieve something Mm -hmm. Um, And so his question is What about all all of those People who we never named and who, in fact, do what they're asked to do. They're, like, political, they're citizens, they they do everything that, that they can for the community, and their names are never up there in the air. Um, is there a way to think both about them and history in such a way that anonymity gets recognized? Mm-hmm. So, on the one hand, that would be the question of recognition of the anonymous. And, and he does... Um, That at very many levels throughout his life, he starts, uh, which some people think is bizarre, with this obituary for a woman, old woman, he never met, he wrote an obituary for her, and he didn't sign himself, so it wasn't about him, right? When you you go through his journal, this enormous pile of of words, and uh, a lot of it is about other people um, who he meets, uh, either his friends, uh, townsmen, or he registers deaths of a lot of people who he might or might have not known. And he turns his journal into a kind of a vague cluster of obituaries to those anonymous people, which is his way, I suppose, to to register their contribution to the political and the social. And that gesture, I think, is also very political and has to be taken into account when we think about first politics or or his um, relation to the communal and, and the ethics of the, of, the, of the communal.
0: It's time for our final break. Here's another from Vijay Ayer, Little Pocket-Sized Demons. When we come back, I'll ask Branka Arsic about Thoro's famous opinion about museums. He hated them. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB, I'm Doug Storm. For our final segment in this celebration of the birth of Henry David Thoreau, 200 years ago on July 12th, we'll hear about Thoreau's vitalist understanding of life and how it's an absolute negation of any theory of eugenics. But first, Thoreau on museums. I asked Branka Arsik why Henry hated museums so much. Here's his famous opinion. I hate museums. There is nothing so weighs upon my spirits. They are the catacombs of nature. One green bud of spring, one willow catkin, one faint trill from a migrating sparrow would set the world on its legs again. The life that is in a single green weed is of more worth than all this death. They are dead nature collected by dead men.
2: simply put, they're kind of snapshots, uh, a standing still, um, a resting motion, and therefore they're, for, for they're just simply epistemologically inaccurate, because they don't give us things in process, um, that is to say, as they are, they don't give us anything, they give us abstractions, and that is his big, big problem with museums of all sorts, uh, from natural history museums to art museums. He also had, um, I argue, a kind of a vitalist uh, understanding of art and poetry and um, aesthetic form. Thor is somebody who, in resisting this kind of freezing of uh, life as a process, that is to say, in order to really get to the truth of how life is and what it is and and how it operates, he also systematically resisted generalizations of all kinds of sorts that, that he saw as abstractions. And so there's this kind of, to me, really very telling moment in this kind of little um, short exchange that 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 he had with with Agassi. He sends him a bunch of um, a fish, pickerel, and then he heard that Agassi said, "Well, you know, I mean, uh, I did not know of that fish." And. And Thoreau writes back and says, well, it's not clear to me, did you, not, did, you, did you not know about all of them or only one of them or which one of them? So to me, the, the example is telling because if there's 12 fish in front of him, then each one is absolutely unique. Uh, we cannot even generalize as far as to say, oh, I see a common trait. Uh, you know that uh, running through these twelve specimens there is in fact there are no specimens every everything's absolutely unique, which is why, and that is and that is another moment where the ethics of his vitalism comes to the fore, I think because everything's unique right uh, because precisely there are no classes uh taxons because it's impossible to come to anything that's generalized or general or abstracted, he would claim that everything's absolutely single. And so the loss of every single specimen, as it were, is absolute, is an absolute loss. Hmm. A death of a single pickerel, even if the species is not endangered, is somehow an absolute loss. It cannot be recovered because everything's absolutely... Unique, And that's where I see an explanation of the reason why a vitalist like Thoreau, who claims that in, a, in an absolute sense there's no death, would also be somebody drawn to such deep uh, mourning and grief. Because everything's so unique that every every loss is an absolute loss in a sense.
0: You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. This is Doug Storm, and I'm speaking with Branka Arsic about Henry David Thoreau's radical conceptions of death and life which she details in her new book Bird Relics Grief and Vitalism in Thoreau. You hit uh, on uh, another major theme there with uh, and we've talked about it throughout uh, already in some sense but the the literal uh, understanding of Thoreau or Th- Thoreau's use of of words as as literal uh, acts or things in themselves in some sense, and how uh, the the metaphorical has, uh, has a, a, again, been a, a way we've sort of been led astray from thinking about life and, and being a, as it is in itself. Can you help us understand the way metaphor perhaps has led us astray and how Thoreau tries to get us into that space of a literalness?
2: Yeah, well... You see, that was um, that was a very big decision I had to face um, in order to even start thinking about Thoreau, and I think every reader of Thoreau has to make that decision. By which I mean the following, um, and I start the book by by that claim, by saying that there's so many weird things going on in Thoreau all the time; they they never stop, and being isolated in. Uh, a cabin on a Walden Pond is the least weird of all, <laughs> right? right? Um, so there there are moments when, when he, you know, spends hours looking at a fish and thinking to himself, well, when am I going to start talking like it? And so what happens uh, with um, a massive amount of sentences like that? What do we do with them? When he talks like very famous instances, for instance, in Walden, when he talks about the clay becoming generative of life, or the loon that's famously like, you know, doing all kinds of things. So, the question is, how are we going to read that? And I, I said to myself that if I were going to read it, there, there are many great readings of many of those famous uh, instances in, in Walden, and but they are metaphorical. So, the loon is typically taken to be as the mat- metaphor of ourself that is unstable, that is divided, uh, that um, uh, represents the otherness in us, that haunts us, which is possible. Um, everything's possible once we decide that what he's doing is that he's using metaphors. But there is a question for me there. If he, what he's doing is that he's using metaphors, why does he need nature for that? I mean, he can use met- any kind, kind of metaphor. Does he really need a loon and why? So I said to myself, there is one problem with met- metaphorical readings, and that is that metaphors can be metaphor of anything. They-, that can- they can be metaphor of what you want them to be a metaphor of. So the question for me was okay, what happens if we take him from the beginning to the end literally? If he says, I wanted to become a fish, I go, like, okay, you really want to become a fish? Where does it follow from there? Uh, the loon is the loon, uh, it's just the loon. Um, it's just a it's just a bird, um, and so if it does not represent anything, if it simply is um, a being rather than an allegory of another being, then what does that mean for us? And and uh, for me, the the beauty of uh, the intellectual challenge also of reading Thoreau was that this kind of disciplinary norm that I imposed on myself, he really means it. He really means what he says, and you have to stay with the literality, literalness of, of his claims. And I think that often generated um, kind of different approaches to famous passages.
0: Yeah. In- I think, too, uh, again, the part of your political project is... is um, um you you mentioned the the various vitalists as well who are trying to understand uh death uh and disease and disease as being uh what life is as much as anything else that it's not that there's a perfect health. Uh, again a way in which we stop trying to yield this idea of the perfect that has uh, as you say a hierarchical better thans uh, along the way but rather that uh, pathologies are life as well and uh, I don't know if you make uh, if that's the understanding that galls are a pathology of plants as well but they are they are a kind of bloom in, in Thoreau as well a kind of flower
2: he's acutely so aware um, of the fact that um, life is illness uh, and sickness and and so i argued that he really radically and that's also another instance when one can detect his politics within his theory of life he kind of goes into quite some detail to to argue that that what we call pathological in fact is not pathological because pathological um, exists only on condition we understand something as non pathological that is to say as normal and what he's claiming is that what we claim is pathological, is equally normal as anything else, and that there is no standard, as it were, of health or or perfection in biological life that should or can function as a standard, against which we would then define something as precisely sick or disabled or, or pathological. So... When I think about the politics that's ingrained in that understanding of life, I think about the fact that Thoreau would never ever call anything disabled any form of life, but to the contrary, even the sick life uh, for for him is the sort of life's ability um to live so to kind of fast forward that argument, say 70 years ahead and to come to discourses, uh, in biological discourses in Europe, say in 1930s, most obviously Nazi Germany, right? All of those discourses that, that kind of disqualified certain lives on the basis of their being mm, not perfect enough or disabled would be absolutely uh, impossible on the basis of Thoreau's theory of life. Um, so that is one of the reasons I think that we should um, uh, go, go back and read Thoreau's understanding of life from that political point of view also.
0: That's our show. We'll go out with Vijay Iyer's interpretation of Michael Jackson's human nature. Again, happy belated birthday, Henry David Thoreau, born 200 years ago on July 12, 1817. Thoreau published just two books in his 44 years, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers and Walden. But if you have only one hour to devote to the writings of Thoreau, then turn to civil disobedience and go deep. Thanks to Christoph Ermscher, Provost Professor of English at Indiana University, author most recently of a new biography of Max Eastman, and to Branka Arsene, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and author of Bird Relics, grief, and vitalism in Thoreau. Thanks for listening. A reminder that you can find this program, along with other interchange programs, available for podcast at our website, wfhb.org slash news slash interchange. Feel free to send us email also. Our address is interchange at wfhb.org. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Wes Martin is board engineer. And Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.